0: If you would, open your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. book of Hebrews, chapter 3. Jeremiah the prophet tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Well, here in Hebrews, chapter 3, the author is writing to people who have been cured, if you wish, of original sin. And yet he writes this in verses 12 and 13. If you look at it, Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. As we've gone through this series, looking at original sin from time to time, as I think through things, different thoughts have come to my mind, and I thought I would share them by way of introduction today. The first is a story that I remember from elementary school, so this was many, many years ago. Um, The story is of a Chinese father, as, as far as I remember it, who brought a bundle of sticks to his three sons, I think there were three sons, and he gave the bundle to them and said, can you break this bundle of sticks? And so the story goes that they tried different things, and the one I remember is that they put it between two rocks and jumped on it, and they were not able, in fact, to break the bundle of sticks. And they brought it to the dad and said, it can't be done. And the father then took the bundle of sticks from them, untied the rope that bound the sticks together, and then took each stick, and one by one he broke them. And the moral of the story is that in in unity there is strength, but if we are divided, then in fact we can be easily defeated. But as I see it, I think it illustrates an aspect of original sin. As I said when we began this series, that the beginning beginning of rationalism was not the denial of God. The Enlightenment didn't say we want to be atheists, and in fact. the man who is oftentimes seen as the beginning of the modern age, Rene Descartes, was a very devout Roman Catholic. So it is not a denial of the existence of God. Rather, it is the denial of original sin. So it isn't we don't believe in God. It is we don't believe in original sin. As I mentioned earlier in the series, one German philosopher put it, the concept of original sin is the common opponent against which All the different trends of the philosophy of the Enlightenment join forces. Everyone is against original sin. The effect was, in the story of the Chinese father, of untying the cord that bound the sticks together, the sticks being sins, particular sins, but together they make up what we would call original sin. And since then, not all of them, but many of the sticks have been broken one by one. So having denied the condition of original sin, the symptoms now have also been denied. And things that used to be seen as universally wrong, okay, you don't even need to use Christian words or theological, you don't even have to say sinful. Things that were seen as wrong now are seen as okay. And I I would argue that it is because the cord that was bound together original sin has been taken away and now one by one these sins are being broken and people don't see it as a bad thing. The church has failed in this area. We have failed to tell the good news because we haven't been dealing with the bundle of sticks. We've been dealing with each stick individually and so... um, the tradition I come out of, hellfire and brimstone type of preaching, tends to focus on individual sticks and not the condition itself of being sinners before God. Some might call it a tactical retreat, but I would say the church has failed greatly in this regard. The second thing that I've been thinking about is with regard to what we looked at last week of temptation, that there is a voice within us that calls us, it is the pollution in our own hearts that allows us to be tempted. A simple desire, not a bad desire, not an evil or a lustful desire, a simple desire suddenly is morphs into something that is terribly wrong. This is the danger of sin, that a trial, a difficulty because it becomes a temptation, and is a desire, even a God given desire, in fact becomes deadly. As I said last week, even if there were no devil, there would still be wickedness. And if all of our circumstances in life were pleasant, everything was going along as we would want it to, human nature would still be evil. Because the enemy is within the camp. Our hearts, in fact, are our enemy. And from this I take at least two things. First of all, the heart is the source. And if every heart is different then the temptations that we face are different. Um, We each have weaknesses, and they may not be the same weaknesses. And we need uh, to be very careful. I think oftentimes people who um, are strong in a particular area condemn people who are not strong in that area, failing to recognize that, in fact, they have weaknesses as well. Don't know that it fits, but I'm reminded of the story Osganis used to say that if a man is drunk on wine, you'll kick him out of the church. If he's drunk on money, you'll make him a deacon. You know, somehow certain sins are seen as really terrible and we look down on people. In fact, we all face unique temptations. Secondly, that the temptations are unique to us means that What tempts you may not tempt me at all. Moving on from these thoughts, and it is connected, I want us to consider the deceitfulness of sin. We've seen earlier in this series that though we have been cured from the condition of sin, the symptoms still remain. We are born into this world as sinners in need of redemption, and then God, by His grace, by His love, has redeemed us. And he has cured us and is in the process of ridding us. Well, he has rid us of original sin and helps us as we deal with remaining sin. As Paul wrote to the Romans, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This chapter, by the way, Romans chapter 8, begins with these words, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The reality is, if we have given our lives to the Lord Jesus, if we have put our faith in him, we are no longer condemned, but we still have the symptoms, we still do things we should not do. We need to remember that indwelling sin will be with us as long as we are in the world. As long as we are in the world, sin will be there with us. And this is what we hear indirectly from Paul. Uh, For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with, one, with each other, so that you do not do what you want. Paul wrote in the earlier chapter, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. As we think of uh, the death of Titus' uncle, while it is a time of sorrow, we need to realize and remember he no longer struggles with sin. He no longer sins. Temptation is no longer an issue for him. He is in the presence of the Lord Jesus. The second thing we need to remember is that not only is indwelling sin with us, but it is still active. It is still at work. It is trying to get us to do the things we should not do or to not do the things that we should. It isn't simply living in us. It is active in us. It is always at work. It's always acting. It's always conceiving, always seducing, always tempting, always troubling. And as we will see, it is always seeking to deceive. It is deceitful. It seeks to deceive. We must be constantly aware of the deceitfulness of sin. Think about this. Normally when we think of temptation, I think we think in terms of desire or our affections, that we have Uh, inclination, there are things that we want to do that perhaps we shouldn't do, or there are things we should do, but we really don't feel like it, we don't think, think. we don't want to do it, we don't have the desire to do those things. Um, So in James chapter 1, each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Human nature is sinful, and what begins as a simple desire... Even a God-given desire becomes an avenue to sin and death. So I've mentioned before, I think the NIV and then even the King James, they are trying to put the argument in a particular way. The NIV says evil desire, the King James has the word lust, but the English Standard Version simply says desire, his own desire. And I think this, this is important, because if we think, well, I have good desires and bad desires, and... So it's the bad desires that lead me uh, to sin. Yeah, no. Our desires have the potential to lead us uh, to the place of death, whether we recognize it or not. A trial, difficulty may become a temptation, and it turns deadly. But I would argue today that the deceitfulness of sin has more to do with the mind than it does with the heart or the affections or even the will. Some have made the case that when, in fact, our affections, our heart is tempted, the mind is there to be able to say, no, we will not do this. That, in fact, the mind has a clear vision of what's going on and can step in and keep us from doing things we shouldn't do. But what do we do when the mind is deceived? When the heart is deceived, the mind can say, No, no, that's a deception, don't do that. But what do we do when the mind is deceived by the deceitfulness of sin? Then we are in serious trouble. The mind is the leading faculty of the soul. We have the will, we have the affections, we have the mind. It is the mind through which I think everything must go. In a sense, whatever or whenever the mind Points to, that's where the will and the affection will go. So the deceiving of the mind is perhaps the most dangerous aspect of sin in our lives. The affections and how they get tempted and whatever is, is more troublesome, I think, but the most dangerous is the mind itself. What is, deceif- what is so deceitful about sin? What is the nature of the, its deceit? It presents to our minds, to our way of thinking, Things that are contrary to the way they really are. That in fact things are this way and the mind says, no, no, no. The deceitfulness of sin tells the mind, no, in fact, it goes in another direction. Things such as, what is the nature of that thing? We say, well, I think it's bad. And sin comes along and goes, no, actually it's not. The cause of things, the effects of things. You see, what sin does is it hides what ought to be seen. It conceals our circumstances, and more than that, the consequences of our particular act. And it presents things as they are not. Do you remember the story of the serpent with Eve? Let me read it to you. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. It begins with a question. The seduction, the deceitfulness of sin begins with a question. But not a straightforward question. The serpent says, did God say you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Well, no, that's not it. They couldn't eat from one particular tree. But the question is formed in such a way as to call into question God's goodness. And then it continues with a contradiction. No, that's, that's not right. God knows... That if you eat like that, you will become like him. It makes a false promise. So the deceitfulness of sin is that, first of all, it begins with a question. It, It sort of puts something in our mind. It sort of niggles there at the back of our mind as to whether or not we can or cannot do that or should or should not do that. And then it contradicts what God says. It's like, really? Everybody else is doing it. Are you the one person who's not going to do that? And then it makes a promise to us, a promise it cannot fulfill. It is then that we see that Eve's affections become involved. She sees that the fruit is good for food, pleasing to the eye, and now the deception, it is desiring for gaining wisdom. Sin has to be deceitful. It has to deceive, because otherwise no one would do what sin tells them. Think about it. What is the telos? What is the end? What is the end result of sin? What does sin always lead to? Death. So sin can't, sin can't come up and say, Hey, do this and you'll die. Come on, let's do this. Well, no, no one's going to do that. So sin must be deceitful. It must lie to us. It must make false promises And it must question what God has said. James tells us sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So sin can't come along and say, hey, follow me and we're going to die. No. It lies to us. It deceives us. It must tempt. It must seek to win us over. And it does this, I think, not in one fell swoop. You see, with the serpent, there's sort of step by step. It begins with that question, and then a contradiction, and then finally a false promise. Um, James says, Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after death has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Again, I think when we read this, it, it seems to deal more with the affections, with our hearts, you know, the things that we desire. But consider the verse that comes before this and the verses that come after. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And then afterwards, James says, do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change with like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So what James tells us is that there is, in fact, a conversation, a dialogue of sorts that goes on in our minds. In which, when temptation comes our way, we might say, oh, this is God doing this. This is a, a sort of a rational process. You're thinking, this is what God is doing in my life. It isn't simply, I feel like I want to do this, or I desire to do this. It begins with a conversation in our minds. We want to blame God. And this is human nature ever since Adam and Eve sinned. Adam blames God, the woman you put here with me. In other words, if you hadn't put this woman here, I would have never sinned. Then he blames the woman. She gave me some fruit. And then finally he acknowledges, I ate it. I did what I should not do. Any thinking person would know that we cannot blame God. Um, We like to blame the devil. The devil made me do it. But we cannot blame God. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. He is holy. He is single. We are double-minded. We're all over the place. One day this way, not one day, one moment this, the next moment the other place. God is holy. He is always holy. There's no room for motive in his will, in his actions, or his deeds. God always does what is right. God's not trying to trip us up. He allows difficulties to come into our lives. I would dare say God brings difficulties in our lives that we might grow. That we might mature. But if we stumble and we fall into sin, we can't say, Well, it's God's fault. God tempted me. His desire is that we would grow. So, let's go back to the question of the affections, the desires versus the mind. The mind, or understanding, is the guiding force of the soul. It tells us how to discern. It, in fact, discerns. It judges. It determines what is right and what is wrong. So, this is the aspect that sin must attack. Yes, it can attack uh, the flesh, it can attack our affections, our desires, but in fact, the deceitfulness of sin is an attack on the mind. We are made in the image of God, we are rational creatures, but because of sin, we may in fact be deceived. Frighteningly enough, in some people's lives, the mind has been set aside. Both Peter um, in Second Peter and Jude in his epistle, when they talk about false teachers, one of the things they say about them is that they act like animals, and this isn't to say their behavior, but they are guided by instinct. They don't think, they just go what is instinctive to them, and what is instinctive to creatures who are fallen is sin. Uh, Peter writes But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like beasts they too will perish. The ESV has for brute beasts, they are irrational animals. They don't use their minds. They're simply guided by their desires. Jude calls them unreasoning animals. In a sense, the deceitfulness of sins has conquered their minds and the mind has been set aside and they simply go with whatever they want to do, whatever they feel like doing. This is not the case with the children of God. We have been cured of the condition of original sin. The symptoms are still there. We need to be aware of the importance of our minds and of our thinking. Sin certainly is. Otherwise, sin would not try to attack our minds, would not seek to deceive our understanding. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In his letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul paints a contrast between the way the Ephesians used to be as unbelievers, as Gentiles, and now they are the people of God. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do and the futility of their thinking. In other words, their thinking is just so messed up. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Surely you have heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And there it is, deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your minds. Used to be this way, unthinking. Now you are the people of God, and you are to be thinking. You are to be changed, transformed, renewed in your mind. You are to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's why sin seeks to deceive you. That is why you've been cured, but the symptoms are there, and the deceitfulness is still there. There are at least two duties that God requires of our minds. First of all, that we are to be watchful against the enticements of sin. We are to recognize the wickedness of sin. And again, I think in this generation this is more difficult perhaps than it has ever been. We need to recognize that the enemy lies within, that every sin is a forsaking of God, but that God is good and gracious. Secondly, we need to take care to do the things that God requires. What does God require of us? It's at this point, though, that we need to shift gears and go in a different direction. Because at this point, I think we're still dealing with the, break, the broken sticks. You know, you take off the rope and you've got this bundle of sticks and now you can break them one by one. And we're focusing, or we might be tempted to focus on specific sins. Um, what the writer of Hebrews says a sin that so easily entangles. Each one of us has a sin that messes us, that trips us up so easily. We need to take care that in our thinking about the deceitfulness of sin, that we only think about the things we are tempted to do, the things that are forbidden, the forbidden fruit. Sort of like Eve eating from that tree. That's oftentimes how we think of the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is much more deceitful than that. Because if that were the only thing that sin did, then we'd be ready. You know, bring it on. We, I know you're going to attack my mind. I know that you're trying to get me to do things I shouldn't do. I know that you're going to try to repaint the picture into a portrait that is different than what God intends. No, that's not all that sin does. That's not all of its deceitfulness. We may be deceived by sin into thinking that the grace of God will allow us to do whatever it is we want to do. As Paul asked the Romans, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. God forbid. At that time when we are tempted, when sin speaks to our minds and seeks to deceive us, it may in fact amazingly preach a message of grace. It may... Hold up the grace of God. Imagine, that's how deceitful sin is. It will say to us, God is gracious. If you do this little thing, that's okay. He will forgive you. Don't worry about it. Sin is deceitful. Sin may also, in this deceit, hold up to us, hey, you've been faithful in the past. You've been faithful to God in the past. Um... That's why you're a child of God. You you're allowed. You've been faithful before. You don't you don't always have to walk the straight and narrow. You were faithful to God in the past. Sin may also deceive us and say that we are wiser than we are and even tell us that we are more righteous than we are. And these by the way I think is what this is the problem that we find here in Hebrews chapter 3. The writer is writing to Jewish believers who have really begun to sort of drift away. And that is, he argues, the deceitfulness of sin, it's hardened their hearts. They used to be vibrant Christians, and now suddenly like, hey, I've been a Christian for a while. I've served God. Um, yeah, I can do the things that I want. Or I don't have to be with God's people. And I think this is the, the great deceitfulness of sin in our age. That in fact, as they faced persecution, the temptation was to withdraw and to say, I'm not going to tell anybody I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian inside, but I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm not going to hang out with Christians, because if I do, I could end up getting arrested, being persecuted. And sin tells us, it's okay. You're a child of God. And again, this is the deceitfulness of sin. It will preach to us the gospel, but then it will twist us and cause us to go into a direction that God did not intend. Persecution is a problem. Is not a problem that we face in this country today. That may change. But what we face today is the church being marginalized. Like, yeah, go to whatever church you want, but you know, don't ever talk to me about that stuff. What we face is a temptation to privatize our faith. This is what I believe. It's my truth, if you wish. But more than that, there's a radical individualism, that being a Christian is for the individual and not the body. In our prayer of confession today, taken from Ephesians, there is one body, one baptism, and we don't act like that. And why don't we? Because of the deceitfulness of sin. As we've gone through this series, as we think on the matters of original sin and indwelling sin, and today the deceitfulness of sin, we in fact, by God's grace, need to be on our guard. We must be on our guard. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is the deceitfulness of sin that we imagine somehow that we've figured it out, we have a strategy, and we can handle these things on our own. We forget so easily, because of the deceitfulness of sin, that we need you moment by moment, day by day. We cannot stand alone. And those times when we begin to imagine that we can stand alone, our hearts become hardened. They are not soft and receptive to your truth, to the work of your spirit in our lives. We become hardened. I thank you that you have saved us, that you have cured us of original sin, that one day we will be with you. But in the time we have left here on earth, Fight, the sin will continue to fight against us every moment of every day even on our deathbeds as we are breathing our last sin will still be there seeking to deceive us seeking to take us down the path of death again I thank you that our salvation does not rest in us but in you and for that we are, we are so grateful. I pray by your spirit in the coming days we would think on these things. And not be hearers only, but, but doers of the word. We would think through these things and what it means in our lives. As each of us has unique struggles, unique temptations and battles. As sin seeks to do its worst in our lives stand with us give us grace thank you for bringing us together today may your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today we pray for Dan and Lonnie as they travel we thank you for Mike for Lucy and their birthdays above all we thank you for loving us we pray this in Jesus name Amen.